Well, this week, I had uh, one of those moments, as the sermon slides hopefully come up, that, that uh, you, know, you ever have those days where you just say, I don't want to live on this planet anymore, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but who knows what TikTok is? Anybody? It's, it's, it, if you don't know what TikTok is, it's not a clock on your wall, although it probably should be. Um, it, is a, it is a social media app that, I, as far as I understand, serves very little purpose other than to wreak havoc in the world and to have people dancing on it. Um, so I, if, if you're not on it, you're not missing out, I would, I would plead with you, don't join. I, I've never had a TikTok. I will never have a TikTok. I promise you that. And as my vow to you as pastor. Um, but <laughs> one of the weird things, I was, I, was having, I was connecting with a friend of mine who's a teacher yesterday, and he was lamenting that there's this thing happening in, in the world of our youth culture called the TikTok challenge. And, and what it is, is there's these, these kind of things that are being challenged to happen on TikTok that kids are then doing, and they change throughout. So right now, it's the vandalism challenge. And so TikTok is actually spurring on kids to vandalize bathrooms in their schools and then to post them doing it on social media. I have so many questions. Uh, the first question is why, right? The second question is why? <laughs> the third and fourth and fifth question are also why. The sixth question is, how do you think you're not going to get caught? Like, I did some dumb things as a juvenile youth, but I was smart enough not to post it on the internet while I was doing it and then wonder how it is. Like, I picture these kids going into the principal's office and saying, well, how did you know it was me? My teacher friend told me that one of the upcoming challenges is actually to, 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 to smack the behind of a teacher. I miss the good old days of 2017 when all the kids did was eat Tide Pods. Wasn't it so much greater? So here's, here's the thing. We live in a jacked up world. It's sad. That's only four years ago. Yeah. Yeah, Tide Pods. I know kids personally who did it. I'm so sorry. Ugh. Right? But we live in this world that is jacked up, and that's just one little humorous, not so humorous, anecdote as to why. We live in a weird, bizarre world. We live in a world that is no longer in any way ruled by logic. People have always done stupid things. People have always acted in stupid ways, but this full, the fullness of just logic going completely out the window to the point where we have kids who think they can post in real time doing something on the internet and somehow not get caught. It, it requires the complete suspension of any rational sense in the brain in order for us to get to that point. And so we have to admit that we live in this crazy world. And as Christians, it's especially challenging because we know that it should be different. We know that this isn't the way the world is supposed to work. And we know that somehow we are supposed to be a part of the solution. And we now, as Christians, have to figure out a way that we're going to live in the midst of such a world. Right? We're here. Hopefully Jesus comes back soon. Hopefully before the end of my sermon and we can all spend the rest of the day not worrying about our jobs and just partying with Jesus. But the reality is until that happens, we're here and we're stuck here. And so we have to figure out how do we live in such a chaotic world where everything goes, where rule and reign of reason is completely suspended. And it's frustrating. I don't know about you, at least for me it's frustrating. 
it's hard to hear of people who have to figure out how to navigate their faith in a work environment that says somehow they can't. Which, by the way, legally you can, but that, I'm not your lawyer, I'm your pastor. So talk to a lawyer about that. But, but it's hard. It's hard to navigate such a world. And I think if we look in Scripture, one of the primary things that helps us is to understand that the world that we live in isn't really new. I think we, I think we believe that the chaos of the world today, things are worse than they've ever been. Right? It couldn't have possibly been this crazy in biblical times. But the truth is, that the way that our world works and the suspension of reality and, and the debaseness of the minds of the people in the world and the culture against the Lord, it's, it's a cycle type of thing. The, 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 the Jewish people look at the world and the history in a cyclical way and they say that we can look at times in Scripture and certain places and cities and historical timelines and we can see that the world was just as jacked up then as it was now. And so when we get to passages or places where the scripture speaks to cultures, we, we are good and quick to listen because it does help to know they were dealing with this stuff. Right? Read the book of Romans and the descriptions of the sinful nature of people during that time. You'll find out real quick that nothing is new under the sun. The only difference is they didn't have Tide Pods or TikTok back then. Right? But I guarantee you that there were people like Paul and others getting up and speaking and preaching in such a way where they said, this is what's happening in the world. I don't want to live on this planet anymore. Right? Today is one of those times. And so as we ask ourselves, how do we as Christians kind of inject and live in a world that is this crazy? This is helpful. We're looking at the very beginning of um, Paul's letter to Titus this morning. And Titus, we got into this kind of a little bit here and there. Titus was serving in, in Crete, on the island of Crete. It's this island in the Mediterranean, very Greek culturally, but its own kind of place. And uh, most presumably, towards the end of Paul's missionary journeys, at some point between there or the house arrest in Rome, somewhere in there, he, he has Titus in Crete. And he writes this letter to Titus because Titus... Dealing with the Cretans was like us dealing with the madness of today. Crete was everything goes. Crete, when you, when you look at cultural studies of the area of that time, you kind of get the sense of what the book of Judges was like, right? Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Whether they are Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter. It's kind of a whatever place. And there's chaos in Crete. And so Timothy, or sorry, Titus is trying to minister and pastor in this place. And that hopefully should sound familiar to us. And so Paul gives him these words of encouragement. The whole point of what Paul is writing is to equip Titus to be able to do his work in this place. And so since it sounds like where we live today, minus the Tide Pods and TikTok, maybe it behooves us to listen. So this is what, Titus, or what Paul says to Titus in the very beginning um, after some greetings. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he says to, to, Tim, to Titus, the reason I put you here is so that you could kind of bring order to the chaos. That's your job. And how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to appoint elders in every town. You're going to send people, Christians, leaders, into every place throughout the island of Crete. Well, what are these leaders supposed to be like? Well, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times in Scripture, it talks about 
right? Leadership requirements, husband of one wife. And that begs the question, well, to be a leader in the church, do I have to be a married man? No. Paul himself was not a married man, but yet he was a leader in the church, right? And so th- what it's getting at is it's, it's a, if you want to have a mark of someone who's a good leader, one of the first things is their house is in order, if I'm getting an elder and I want to send them into a place in Crete, and the point of the elder is so you could put what remains into order, well, then we should probably have somebody who's good at managing their own house, right? If I'm looking for somebody to be a manager to bring order to the chaos, and I visit them in their house, their family, and everything about their lives is complete and utter chaos, well, I'm going to think maybe they're not the person to bring order to the chaos, Right? And so that's, that's all that's getting at. And then in seven, we get into this list. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he gives this list. And and there's something unique about this list. If we take out the violent drunkard piece, most of these things are not things we consider to be debased, awful sins, right? A lot of times you get these lists in Scripture and it's, it's, it's the sexual ethics stuff, it's drunken debauchery, it's people doing their own thing, it's murder, strife, all these awful things. This list, what's unique is, most of us can look at it and go, yeah, I, I kind of fit that a lot of times. Right? You ever feel like you might have been a little arrogant? Right? You feel like you might not be the most hospitable all the time? These are things that apply, that cut to us. A lot of us are able to say, well, I'm not a drunkard, I'm not violent, but few of us can say I've never been arrogant. And so that's the list that he goes through. And what does he say? People have to be above reproach. So the first mark of someone who is a a leader within the community who is going to inject the Christian faith and bring order to the chaos in Crete, what do they have to have? They have to be above reproach. What does that mean? It is beyond the idea of doing the right thing. And it it says to even not put yourself in positions where you might be perceived to be doing the wrong thing. Let no one even be able to question you and your character and your motives. So not only do we do things rightly, but we do them so rightly and so transparently and so above book that we can't even be accused of of wrongdoing. That's, That's the first. Above reproach. We don't just stay out of trouble, we stay out of the perception of trouble. Not to be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunk or violent. I think the second two go without saying, right? As Christians in this world, let's not be drunk or violent. Uh, But this idea of arrogance, right? Don't be arrogant. This is hard as followers of Christ. Not because we're not necessarily a humble people, but as the people sitting in this room, there's something we know, right? We know a truth and part of the call on the Christian life is to project and to teach and to show that truth to the world that doesn't know it. And so it's really hard to do this in the midst of the world without at least appearing arrogant. Because what we know is that we know something that they don't. 
we know what they don't. How is, it, how is it possible not to bring that across in an arrogant way? Right? And we don't know it because of some doing of our own. We know it because of the grace of Christ. We talked about that last week. But that is true. So arrogance is especially hard. And so is being quick-tempered sometimes. Some of you are easy at not being quick-tempered. For some of us, it's a struggle to not be quick-tempered. Right? But those are things that we're called to. Not about greedy gain. Why is this one so important? Because if we become about greedy gain, then when we go to share our faith with the world around us, there's this question of why we're doing it. Let there be no one out there that knows or thinks that we're sharing the gospel of Christ so that we can somehow pat our own coffers. Right? We're not sharing the gospel so that we can get butts in seats or tithing envelopes in this building. That's never the goal. And so we don't go out and make people projects. We don't go out into the world in such a way that we just want to get them here and get the membership rolls up and those kinds of things. That's not what we're about. And we need to be sure that in our dealings, if you run a business, do not run it in a greedy way, but run it in a generous way. And yes, overly generous, because we have to demonstrate a certain level of non-greediness to the world so that they would question us. It says to be hospitable. We have to let strangers enter our lives and be a part of it. It might require opening our homes to people we don't love having in our homes. Right? Or our time to meet with people who we maybe don't want to meet with. Maybe there's people that are a nuisance. But guess what? We're called to be hospitable, to be a people that are welcoming and embracing of people. That when they come, they would know the warm love and embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to be a lover of good. What does it mean to be a lover of good? Well, we love things that the Lord says are good. And the contrast of that is we hate things that the Lord finds detestable. And we advocate against evil, even when it's costly. Even when it costs us time, talent, treasure, or popularity. We set our heart and mind on the things of God, and we set our heart and mind against the things that God is against. And we do it in a way that is loving and caring, but we don't shy away from the truth. And finally, we are self-controlled and disciplined. This one is hard. I'm not a particularly emotional person, but, but some are, and that's not a bad or good thing, right? It's just we're all wired differently. Some people wear their emotions on their sleeves. Some people don't. There's nothing wrong with either one. But there is a call in Scripture to be able to control ourselves to an extent. That we control our emotions in such a way that they don't pour out in a sinful, unhealthy way. That's what this is about. And the truth that we have to reckon with is that this is a challenging list. Here's our problem. We don't do this well as individuals and as a church. And that's not me preaching to the choir. That's me preaching with the choir. I could stand here like this and say, we don't do this well. All right, because here's the reality. We are arrogant about the truth. We react to non-Christian world by berating it and fearing it and lashing out against it rather than by injecting ourselves into it. We come into our holy huddles and we throw truth grenades every once in a while, whether it's in person or even worse on the internet. Right? We throw these things out and hope they stick like they're somehow going to change the minds of people. Right? I say it all the time and I say it again. I've never seen a social media post, no matter how witty or clever you think it is, change a person's mind. Why are you putting it up other than to either make yourself look bigger or get a laugh? 
not helpful. Stop doing it. We are not a people who exercise self-control. We go out into the world and we throw the truth grenades and we, we do it in the name of what the Lord calls us to do. We are supposed to proclaim the truth, but we don't do it in a self-controlled way. We don't do it in a way that asks, well, how can we do it effectively? Right? It's the person at a funeral that just starts throwing scripture at the loved ones about how God works for the good. Maybe not the time. Right? Self-control is to say, how can we engage with the world around us in a way that actually is effective? Not the way that we want to. Maybe it's not the right time to correct. Maybe we do correct, but it's in the span of a long period of time. Maybe before we throw correction at people, we have to actually get relationally involved with them to the point where we are a person that they value and trust and will listen to before we get to set them straight. Because that's how we would want to be approached. Right? We are not less disciplined as a people of God. Most of the rates of moral failures that we talk about in the world today, infidelity, divorce, and marriage, all those kinds of things, uh, cheating when it comes to issues of money, most of the rates of those types of things are very much the same when you look at Christians and non-Christians. There is not in the world today that much of a discernible difference between the people of God and the not people of God. We're not a disciplined people. We're just not. And we're not hospitable. We love to close ourselves off. We love to be hospitable to ourselves, right? Who are we going to have lunch with after church today? We're going to have lunch with people who we know need the gospel and we can purposefully insert ourselves and inject ourselves into their lives and bring them into ours and let them, let them be a part of the messiness that is us and our family so that they might see how God works. No, we're going to go to lunch with the people who are sitting four pews over because that's what we always do. We don't do this. Now, here's the thing. Look closely at this list again. Almost everything that the list gives us in Titus 1 is about engagement with other people. Paul's solution for Titus, for order in the midst of chaos, is that he would come and send people that are qualified as leaders to be engaged in a radical and intentional way with the communities in which they find themselves. That they would bring color into a community that has been living in black and white. That he would bring life into a community that has been living in death and doesn't even know it. That they would be such a stark contrast by engaging in these things and not engaging in the things they're called to avoid that people would take notice of a way that is different. That's Paul's solution. He says, Titus... Raise up leaders that are this way, send them into every corner of Crete, and slowly they're going to take over. People are going to see them. People are going to wonder what the heck is going on with them. People are going to ask questions, and people are going to want to know why. And when they ask, you tell them. Wasn't, isn't that 2 Timothy 3.16? All scriptures, God breathed, or no, sorry, always be ready to have, to have a reason for the hope that you have, right? It's not 3.16, but it's in 2 Timothy, right? Anytime we walk out of this building, we should be prepared to give a reason or defense for the hope that is in us. The presumption of that passage is that when we walk out of here, people might actually see some semblance of a difference in hope that makes them go, what's different about you? We can't share a hope if they don't ask. Why do you have hope? When you walk into a room and you have a friend who looks extraordinarily happy, right? what do you say? Why are you so happy? What's going on? Tell me about it. 
But if they don't look happy, you're not going to ask that question. If we don't project to hope, they're not going to ask about why we have it. And we're not going to have a position where we can give a defense. And so we are called to come in and we are called to cultivate. One of the things that has happened over the last few centuries is that Christians have ceased to be culture creators and shapers. If you go back to, to even, even one, two hundred years ago, right, what, what, was the, what was the case of Christian faith? Most of the culture was shaped by it. Christianity and things shaped things like arts and music. They were the pioneers of it. If you wanted to have the best music, you would go to the Christians because they knew how to do it. It's not true today. Right? The best art, the best culture. We don't, as a church, shape culture anymore because here's what's happened. Culture started to push back. And instead of cultivating and projecting a better way forward, we started to compromise little by little because we were worried about what people would think. And so small bit by small bit, the church started to retreat and let the culture take over and let it cultivate itself. Right. And so now we're at a point where the church is no longer the primary influence, at least not in this country, at least not in the Western world. There's hope because there's some places in this world where that's definitely the case. There's places in Asia and Africa where the church is flourishing and is creating culture and projecting it onto the, the community around them. They're the shapers and the movers. We've kind of lost that a little bit, haven't we? And the reason we've lost it is because the list in Titus is incredibly difficult. It is so hard to abandon those things. It is so hard to live a life without arrogance, without, with self-discipline, without all these things. It is not easy to do. And so we have to strive as people of God to figure out how do we do it. And the beauty is that Paul actually gives us an answer. If we go to 2 Timothy, here's what he says in 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 12. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God is the one who gives us the spirit, not ourselves. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now have been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul really knows how to write a run-on sentence. He would not pass grammar school today. Right? There's, there's like one at the end, but that whole chunk is almost one sentence just by itself. And if you notice, verse 7 starts with for God, so it's actually a continuing and existing sentence already. Here's, here's what we need to understand. God gave us a spirit of power, not of fear. The reason we can't do well the things that Titus 1 tells us to do well and the reason that we struggle to abandon the things that Titus calls us to abandon is because we live with a spirit of fear. All of these things trace back to fear. We are arrogant because we fear being inferior. 
in a group of people. We're afraid if we're not arrogant that we might not be the greatest or the best or the smartest in the room. We're afraid of it. We are eager to gain and we strive to do it in dishonest ways because we fear that if we don't, God won't provide for us. If I don't make everything about earning as much money as I can, I will not have what I need in retirement. Where is the Lord's provision in the midst of that sentence? There isn't. Why? We're afraid. Does that mean we shouldn't save for retirement? Absolutely we should. We should have our 401ks and 403bs and all those things. But it's not where our focus lies, and we never do it with a greedy sense. We always put the Lord's way and the way that we're perceived above the gain of our own lives because we trust that when we follow the Lord, he will provide for us. We're not hospitable because we are afraid of either A, who will come in and what they'll do, or B, we're afraid of what people will think of us if we really let them into our lives. Right? We want to have our home lives and be who we want to be, and come home and kick off our shoes. We don't want to let anybody into what that looks like. That's the real us. We want to come outside and put on the us that people love. And if we're hospitable, and if we let people into the mess of our lives, and our families, and our marriages, and our parenting, and we let them see how it works in the kingdom of God, well, maybe they won't like us as much. We don't speak for good because we're afraid of the consequences. We are terrified of being on the wrong side of history. And that sentence has been applied to things for decades and decades and decades. You name it. We're afraid. We are undisciplined because we think that this life is the best that there is. If we really believed and lived as if this life was a temporary stay until the grandest, greatest life to come, it would be way easier to be disciplined in this life because we'd be doing everything we can to set ourselves up for the next that really matters. Imagine if we actually understood, like consciously and subconsciously, that this life, this 70 to 100 years, hopefully, that we get to live on this earth is just a snap in comparison to the whole of reality that we will get to experience with God and his kingdom. But we don't do that, and so we're undisciplined. We're quick-tempered because we think we are our own means of justice and we have to win the argument. And so what's the solution? All of these fears are obliterated in light of the gospel. The gospel puts these things aside. Every fear that we have, if we are under the gospel of Christ, we don't have to be arrogant because we don't have to be afraid of being inferior because we know that we're inferior and we serve the one who is greater than all. And so we can set our arrogance aside because we don't deserve to be arrogant anyway. We know who we are, but we know also whose we are. We don't have to be eager to gain because the Lord will provide for us, if not in this life, then in the next. And we cannot be touched. We can't be touched by the sting of poverty, of lacking of things. We can't be touched by illness. We can't even be touched by death. And so why, why put all of this effort into selfish gain when we know what's coming to us at the end? There are treasures being stored up in heaven, and he is preparing a place for us. Lord, can we stop with the selfish gain in this world? We would speak easily for good and against evil because we would trust that there is a God who is behind us when we do and that his power is sufficient. 
we would be able to be disciplined because we know that we're aiming for the next life. And we would be able to not be quick-tempered because we don't care if we win the argument. Because justice or vengeance aren't ours but the Lord's. We can lose an argument against somebody in this world, even though we know we're right, and we can walk away smiling because we know that the Lord is the ultimate arbiter of all things justice, and he will take care of it in the end. The gospel is what empowers us and enables us to live out of faith and not out of fear. And so that's why he says, this was the passage from before, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The way that we enact Titus 1 in our lives as followers of Christ when we go into the world is by remembering that it is he who gives us a spirit of self-control and of love, and he is the one who rids us of our fear. Our faith and trust in him are the only way that we can do that, the only way forward. He understands that when we abandon our earthly fears and place our trust in the Lord, God gets to work in the midst of us. And so this week, my challenge to you is that you would spend a significant amount of time in personal prayer. You would take some moments this week to find a quiet place and that you would start to ask the Lord in the midst of opening Titus 1 to, to work in your heart, to point to you these things that you need to be at work on and that rather than trying to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and just do better for Jesus, which isn't how we're meant to live, that you would ask that the Spirit comes in and empowers you to lay those things aside. Pray for things like self-control and discipline and pray that he provides you opportunities to practice it and to get better at it and to let him work in the lives of us and our people so that as individuals we can go out and be shapers titus shaped crete he shaped the whole island by injecting leaders with a vibrant christian faith into the midst of chaos and they showed the world that there's something different there's stuff out there that is bigger than Tide Pods and TikTok. I know those are silly examples that get a conversation started. But we all know that there's folks in this world who live in dark places, whether in the actual world or in their minds, because they don't have the hope. For them, there's nothing else. There's no wonder that we have a culture that has gone so far from the Lord. There's no hope in that culture. Who's going to inject that hope? The Lord calls it to be us. Right? How do we live as followers of Christ? We control our emotions. We control ourselves. We put aside our own needs and we inject flavor and life. Right? What does he say? We are the salt and the light of the earth. We bring truth and we bring vibrancy. That's what he calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the giver of life. We thank you that you in our own lives have been at work to call us and bring us to you and show us in the midst of this dark world that there is a better way and that it is you through your son and his death on the cross. That there is a way that you have called this creation into being that isn't the way it is right now, but that there is a time and place when things will be restored. And Lord, we live in the midst of that hope. We praise you that every Sunday we can come here and say, come again, Lord Jesus. And we know and trust that someday you will. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy to us, your people, even when we fail to live up to your standards. 
And Lord, so we ask that, not so that you might love us, but because you already love us, that we would live lives worthy of Titus 1. That we would abandon through your power, through your spirit, the things that are of this world, and that we might be people that inject beauty and creativity and order and love into the chaos that we call the world and culture of today. Give us your power and your spirit to do that as we go out, that we might be shapers in our communities, in our places of work, of education, of friendships. That there would be over 100 people of this church that go out and disperse, scattered as the church in Acts was, all throughout this area of Stowe, Akron, Kent, Hudson, Streetsboro, Twinsburg, Macedonia, Cuyahoga Falls, everywhere. And that your flavor and your richness and your beauty would be present throughout this place. We love you and we praise you. And all those people said,